Uh, some of you, especially that traveled in from Indiana from that wedding this weekend, I'm glad that you all are awake because I sure wouldn't be if I'd gotten home about midnight like many of you did. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the church and uh, tell you that we are very glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning here at uh, Chillicothe Bible Church. We hope you'll uh, become part of the family here because we are a family and we will love on you. Um, we are in the last few weeks of our study through the Gospel of Mark, and it was suggested to me that when we got to the end of Mark, we should have a party uh, since we have been in there since uh, January. Uh, we will wrap up, I promise, this month uh, our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the last Sunday of August will be the la- our last Sunday in Mark, and then we will uh, uh, we'll do a couple of other things for a couple of weeks, and then I'm going to launch into a, a seven or eight week study on marriage, uh, which will uh, culminate with our marriage retreat in the end of October. And that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, those of you who are married and who would like to go on a marriage retreat that will be fun and, and have a good time with us, um, Karen and I are going. And in spite of that, we would like you to come too. And, um, and it will be a lot of fun. It'll be a good time to relax and to enjoy your marriage relationship with your spouse and to uh, learn a few things, but mostly to... Uh, eat good food and sleep and rest and play together. So it'll be it'll be a fun time. Encourage you to do that. But we're looking today at Jesus' last night uh, before his crucifixion. This is Thursday uh, of, of of Holy Week of the last week of Jesus' life prior to the crucifixion. This is Thursday. And so we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning uh, in uh, verse 12, okay? So if you've got your Bible, uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he entered, The the teacher asked, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. 
This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, as this passage begins, it's Thursday morning. Uh, The Passover will be eaten that night to be followed by the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And along with being God in the flesh, Jesus is obedient to everything that a faithful Jew was to do according to the law. And so one of the things that he did every year was to go into Jerusalem for the Passover and to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was only to be eaten in Jerusalem, and you had to be within the confines of the city to eat it. And so the disciples ask, where do you want us to go to get the Passover ready? And Jesus sends two of them into the city to find a man carrying a water jar who's going to show them the place. Now, reading that as a 21st century American, you might go, well, that's kind of weird. And yet nothing may jump out at you immediately. But have you ever stopped to think about this? There are about a million people packed into Jerusalem at this time. And he says, Go off into town. When you see a guy carrying a jar of water, he's going to lead you to the spot. Really? Out of a town of a million people, how are we going to identify one guy? Well, again, you're 21st century Americans, and because of that, your concept of things is a little different. But back in those days, there was still a concept of things that men did and things which were women's work, if I can use that term, okay? Um, And one of the things that was woman's work was carrying water. Men did not carry water. And so the idea of going into town and seeing a man carrying water would be unusual enough to be identifiable. Men didn't do that. And yet it would not be so completely strange that it would attract a lot of attention. Let me tell you why Jesus is doing this. Notice this too in the passage. Nobody is named. Nobody's names are given. He says to two of the disciples, go look for a random fellow carrying a jar of water, and he's going to take you to the owner of the house, and you're to say to him, the teacher asks, not Jesus asks, why is that? Well, security. He picks two disciples that he knows are, that he knows are reliable, because Jesus knows who the traitor is. 
he knows that Judas is going to be the betrayer. And he says, I've got a signal prearranged with the guy who is going to host us for the Passover. Church tradition tells us that the man carrying the water jar is probably Mark, the author of this gospel. And that the house that he takes him to is Mark's father's house. And, but, you, but the people are never named, and it's for security. Uh, my sister, for the last, uh, well, it's probably been a dozen years now, has lived in a um, large communist nation in the east of our world. And it, in that place, you have to be very careful if you're going to have church. And, in fact, her husband's group has been raided uh, while they were here on, va- here on vacation and having a baby, seeing family. Uh, all of the members of their little group got interrogated by the local police. And you have to be careful. And you, so you don't use names, or if you use names, you use a name other than the person's given name. And so my brother-in-law's name is James. Not his real name, but his, he's James to everybody that talks about him in English. Why? For security. You don't write directly in your email about what's going on. Because email is monitored. You have to be careful and protect what you're doing. And so you write about things like, I'm really getting to know my new friend, Faith, because we're becoming just like sisters. And you're writing to tell people what's going on, but you're doing so in a way that doesn't communicate in the same way. And this is a tense security situation. Jesus knows they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him. They're looking to do so at a time that's away from the crowds. Passover night is a great opportunity for them to arrest him because everybody's going to be at their house celebrating Passover and no one will be out in the streets. And so they could grab him without attracting any attention. And it's dark. This is a day prior to streetlights. And if they're going to celebrate the Passover and Jesus is going to communicate with his disciples the last few things he needs to communicate before he dies on the following morning, he needs to have a secure, safe way of doing that. So nobody's name is used. The two disciples that go and make the Passover celebration ready, their names aren't used. The place they're meeting and the person they meet there is not named. And Jesus says you're to go to a large upper room. Now, this is probably a tent-like structure that's up on the roof because all of the roofs of uh, Middle Eastern houses at this time are flat. And you would go up, and they, they had a ledge about three feet high that went around the, around the perimeter of the roof and steps that went up to it, and you could sit up there in the evening, and it would be cool, kind of like if you've been to the beach. You see some of these beach houses that have decks up on the roof. Well, this is kind of that way. Um, It's not a room so much as it is, like I say, like a tent almost up on top of the, it doesn't look like the Da Vinci painting, in other words, 
Uh, it's not a room in the same way that we think of a room being. But they go and they get this ready, and they're ready to celebrate the Passover. And that night, Jesus and the rest of the disciples go in. Um, and they are at the house, and it's Passover, and they're celebrating Passover, and they're reclining around the table. They're propped on uh, their left elbow on pillows all the way around the table. And this is not only part of the culture, this is part of what it means to celebrate Passover. If you are a Jewish person, you are to recline and rest when you eat, uh, when you celebrate the Passover. And the reason is, is that Passover is the celebration of redemption from, from Egypt and getting set free from slavery. And if you're a slave, you stand and you serve and you walk around. But if you're a free man, then you get to lounge. <laughs> and so, you know, you get the lazy boy action going when you're having this meal. Because the idea is to remember that God is the one who sets you free from slavery. And so now you can rest while you eat. Even poor people were supposed to recline at Passover because it's a celebration of being, being free and no longer a slave. And while they're laying around the table in a circle around this table eating, Jesus drops a bomb and he says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you who is sitting around this table eating with me is going to betray me. And to, the, to a Jewish person, this is about the worst kind of betrayal that you can imagine. Whenever you made a covenant with people, one of the things that you did that certified and sealed that covenant was that you ate a meal together. And, and because of that, the idea be, grew in that culture that Anyone that you ate a meal with was someone that you had, in a sense, made covenant with before God and said, I will never hurt you. You are my friend. And I will not hurt you because I have shared my hospitality with you. And so David, in one of his psalms, laments this, this when one of his, friend, his good friend Ahithophel which there's a good name for you parents. Um, <laughs> you have a kid, you can name him Ahithophel. But um, um, his good friend Ahithophel has turned against him and joined a rebellion against him. And he says this. He says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And that's the, you feel the pain there? Even my close friend, the one I trusted, the one who ate with me, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus is saying, it's not just someone who has at one point in his career had a meal with Jesus. This is someone who has had probably over a thousand meals with Jesus. Over three years, three meals a day. 
one of the twelve is going to betray me. And the disciples are shocked. I mean, you can't imagine that this would be one of yours. This This is the worst possible kind of betrayal you can imagine. This is like your mother, your closest friend, your brother, your sister, turning you in to the authorities. And that's what is about to happen. And they go around the table, and they're just kind of trying to get Jesus off to the side because they know that Jesus' predictions have this funny way of always coming true. And so they kind of get Jesus off to the side, and they say, surely not I. Surely not I. Lord, it's surely not me. I would not betray you. And Mark doesn't tell us this, although uh, Matthew does, that Judas even asks, having already agreed with the chief priest to be the traitor, when everybody else is going around the table, surely not I, even Judas asks. And Jesus intensifies at verse 20, it is one of the twelve, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. (sighs) Hear this warning. He says, Jesus says that he knows the prophecies regarding him are going to be fulfilled. That he's going to be betrayed, that he is going to be betrayed by someone who is close to him that the Messiah is going to die, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted. But, woe to the person through whom that betrayal comes, right? In fact, Jesus says, it would be better for him if he had not been born. And you see in this passage this, this delicate balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility because God had foreordained that the traitor would come. But is the guy who is the traitor still responsible for what he does? Yes. And so Jesus has this last warning. And I think it's, I think it's because he knows Judas is there. He knows Judas is going to hear it. And this is one last final opportunity to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And Judas, of course, rejects it. But not because Jesus didn't give him lots of opportunity to turn away and to let his embarrassment in front of his friends over being there knowing he's the traitor cause him to repent even right then. Even after the plot is hatched, even after he's agreed, he can still turn back. He doesn't do it. And then look at verse, uh, look at verse 22 here. Verse 22 to 25 Uh, In God's providence, we get to celebrate communion on the same day we celebrate communion in this book. Isn't that cool? Um, 
I didn't even plan that. It just happened that way. That was cool. Uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Now, commentators debate on exactly what's happening, but and they don't know exactly how, the, how far back this tradition goes. But one thing that's interesting, the bread that they're eating is matzah bread. And matzo bread is unleavened bread. It's flat. And one of the ways that they keep it flat is they poke holes in it to keep it from rising. And because of that, when it bakes, you get these, these high and low spots that are, that are rippled. And the high spots are brown. And the low spots have these little holes all the way through it. And so you get bread that is striped and pierced. And Jesus breaks it. And he says, this is my body. Now notice he is not literally giving them pieces of his body. His body is symbolized by the bread. Not sawing off fingers or anything weird like that, okay? It's a symbol. This is my body. In other words, you see the striped and pierced bread. I'm the striped and pierced one that the bread represents. And he says, look here. I am going to be the one who is the fulfillment of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 53, where it says this, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, that it was God's will to crush him. He was whipped and we were healed. Zechariah says, then they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son. Jesus is the bread who was given, the one who was pierced and striped on our behalf. He says, take it, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, and traditionally there are four cups of wine that you drank as part of a Passover celebration. And this is the one that's taken immediately after supper. It's the cup of redemption from slavery. Paul, Paul elaborates on this a little bit when he talks about how we were redeemed. God bought us with the blood of Jesus. And we were bought out of the slave market of sin and slavery to it. We were purchased with the blood of Christ. That just as the Passover lamb purchased redemption for the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, so Jesus is saying, my blood is going to purchase redemption for you for your sin. You're going to get free from all of the wickedness and evil that you have done and do on the basis of my blood. And just as, remember, this is Passover, and Passover celebrates that night 
when the death angel came and the firstborn of the nation of Egypt were struck down. But God created a separation between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And when they sacrificed the lamb and they smeared the blood on the door and on the sides of the lentil post going up, made a cross in the doorway with blood that the death angel would see the blood and he would pass over their houses because the firstborn lamb had been slain on their behalf so that their firstborn would not have to be slain on their behalf. When I see the blood on your door, I will pass over you and that will be the night that you get out of Egypt because the blood of the Lamb will cover you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This blood is going to cover over the sins of all the people who come under it. And it's going to cause God's death angel to pass over us and will be redeemed from slavery to our sin because, because of a new covenant that God will establish through the blood of Jesus. This is a highly symbolic act. And he does not drink, and, this, and the text makes this clear, he does not drink the fourth cup. The fourth cup is, is variously called the cup of consummation. Or the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise. Or the, um, the cup of the, the, um, the cup of completion. The one that symbolized the end of the meal, but also symbolized final redemption of God's people. He doesn't drink that one. He says, now this is the last one I'm going to drink. Why? Because there's going to be a greater consummation later. When I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, when the real, final, full consummation comes, there's going to be a party, and we're going to drink wine. I hope that doesn't offend some of you, but Jesus says it, not me, okay? We're going to drink wine with Jesus, and it'll be a celebration and a party because the kingdom will have come. It will have been consummated in what is called the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we celebrate our marriage, in a sense, to Jesus, that our relationship with him has been building up to now, but really is consummated and begins then in the new, in the new covenant in the kingdom of God. And one day we're going to drink it together uh, and I'm going to drink it anew with you, he says, in the kingdom of God. But until then, we're going to hold off on the cup of consummation because the consummation is yet to come. And that's going to be an exciting day. Uh, and then, they, because of that, it's a little bit weird. They didn't, they didn't go through the traditional Passover thing. But they did go ahead and do what was normal to Passover at the end, which was to sing a hymn. This is probably one of the Psalms of Ascents. 
uh, the ones that you sang as you were going up to worship in Jerusalem, they were part of uh, every traditional worship celebration as you traveled the road to and from Jerusalem. And so they sing a hymn, and then as they're on their way out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus drops another bomb. And he says this, you will all fall away. And I want you to see this because Mark, in the way that he has structured his account, has set up a, a parallel thing. In the first section of the passage, you've got preparation for Passover. And then parallel to it in the third section, you've got the actual celebration of Passover. You know what second and fourth are? Jesus' prediction of betrayal by Judas and his prediction of disowning by all the disciples. And he wants us to see that these are parallel events. That they are different in degree, but not in kind from one another. And that Judas and Peter are not so very different. And Judas is not so very different from the rest of the disciples. And this, too, is going to happen in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That Jesus is like a shepherd who, when he is taken away from his sheep, the sheep just wander off everywhere. Jesus is going to get grabbed that night within just a few hours. And when he does, all the disciples are going to bug out like scared bunnies. They're going to run for every corner they can find. A lot of them are going to go back to Galilee. Peter uh, and probably John are going to hang around close enough that they can actually see what's happening. But Peter's going to be close enough also to deny the Lord three times before the cock crows twice. And Peter says, no, no, not me, Lord. I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will, and not once but three times before the rooster crows twice. And then he tells them this, but I am your shepherd, and I'm going to rise, and when I rise, you follow me like sheep back to Galilee, as we'll meet up there. And so they should be looking even after they run for Jesus to rise and to meet them where he does in Galilee, just as he said. Remember what the angel tells, tells him later? He's not here. He's risen and is going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he said he would. They forget all that, as you would too and as I would. Imagine you've given your life to sacrifice and follow for this man. And at the very pinnacle of his ministry, when he is doing the most spectacular miracles you can imagine, including raising a guy from the dead two miles outside of town, he goes out to the grave. This guy's body has been in the grave long enough that he stinks. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the guy comes hopping out in his bandages. This is as good as it gets, people. This is the ultimate kind of ministry you can do. 
And he's at the very pinnacle of his popularity. And the chief priests are going to grab him and pound nails into his wrists and into his feet. They're going to crown him with thorns, stick him on a cross, and hang, hang him on this pole from a hole in the ground outside the city like a criminal and a thief. And all of these guys that have been associated with him and their names are known are going to be marked men. Because if this guy died as a traitor, what does that make me? Traitor. I need to run. And they're going to run. And it's going to happen next week. When we look at the garden, they're going to run. Just like you and I would. Because they're scared and they don't yet know who is really with them through all of these things. Now this week as we close, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a minute. But I just want to celebrate the covenant here that Jesus instituted with us and consider as we, before we do that here, how this passage applies to us. <sighs> Number one. The covenant that Jesus established with each of us uh, in his blood is made for each of us. So let me ask you, have you entered into it? Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood is meant to cover your sin so that when the death angel comes, that he passes over you, and you do not go into judgment, but you go into glory, into the presence of God. And if you have never been covered with your sin by the blood of the Lamb, then here's how you do it. First of all, you need to acknowledge what the Bible says about you is true. That as, that as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, in other words, what you rightfully earn from God is death, eternal separation from God forever because of your sin. What the Bible calls going to hell but that because God loves us so much, he sent the lamb to, be, to die on a cross to give his blood to cover over our sin. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not die and go to hell and be judged for their sin, but would have everlasting life would live eternally in the presence of God and with his people. If you've never done that, let me in invite you and encourage you today to believe, to place your trust in the Lamb whose blood was shed for you and receive forgiveness for your sins and enter into that covenant of which this is a commemoration and a celebration. Let me ask you another question. Do you, like Peter, honor Jesus with your lips 
and deny him with your life. Peter's heroic right here. Before the swords and clubs and torches come, he's heroic. Even if everybody else denies you, I never will. And a lot of us are real good in practice. But when game day comes, we fall down. And we deny him, not just by what we say to other people, but how we choose and live our lives. And so we go to church on Sunday morning and we sing praises and give honor to Jesus. And yet we cheat those with whom we're in business. Or we view things on the internet or elsewhere that we should not. Or we say things in a way that we should not. Or we pronounce faithfulness to Jesus and practice unfaithfulness to our spouse. We sing praises and love to him who lives forever and abuse our children. I would hope that none of these things characterize those who are here worshiping with us. But I am not foolish enough to believe that sin is so completely eradicated that none of these things describe anybody ever. Do we honor Jesus with our lips and deny him with our life and the choices that we make? Last thing, one day, the great day is coming, amen? The great day when we eat and drink and celebrate and give honor to Jesus at the beginning of the consummation of the kingdom, and there will be a feast, and I'll be able to eat however much I want and not worry about its effect on the scale, right? Uh, bring the steaks. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Lemon meringue, yes, bring that too. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I won't have to worry about that anymore, okay? And you won't either. And we will celebrate that Jesus has come for us and that because of his blood covering our sin, the death angel passed over us and we entered in by means of the firstborn into the kingdom of the living God. And this that we're about to do is done in anticipation and celebration of that. But if, as I was preaching here, you felt the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart and prompting you about some area of sin in your heart or your life, we need to deal with that first so that we can properly celebrate together. And I'd like to have the, the praise band come on up. They're going to lead us in a song, and then I'm going to lead us in communion.
I could have those who are going to help us with communion come forward. Scripture says that, as we read today, that on the night Jesus was betrayed,